0: Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com, so please subscribe. We speak today to Dustin Garrow. He's a Uranium market commentator. Uh, We've been speaking to him over the past few months about lots of interesting topics. This week, we talk about the Nuclear Fuel Working Group's recent conversation and what implications of that could be for Uranium market investors. We also look at uh, discounts in the market price to Platts, uh, Uratom's uh, announcement of a few weeks ago, and what he thinks the implications of that could be. Uh, There have been some short-term loans in the market, which goes, who is issuing them, who perhaps is receiving them. Plus, Cigar Lake is not coming back anytime soon, according to him. So, with Kazatomprom's statement of last week, that they may have to come into market uh, to fulfill their contracts. Life has just got that little bit more interesting in the world of uranium. So enjoy the podcast. Dustin Garrow, how are you, sir?
1: Doing well these days, considering everything going on in
0: the world. So. Beautiful.
1: Are you getting out of the house? Are you running around the countryside? Uh, yeah, we were able to make a quick trip to Arizona, and now we're back. So, you know, the, as uh, the US opens up, I think people are a bit more comfortable going out, but still wearing masks in most places and
0: well, you know, adhering to social distancing. So. That's what we like to hear. That's what we like to hear. But look, like, it's been a while since we spoke, and you know things have been the last three months have been a bit crazy in the world of uranium. Lots of lots of moving parts, lots to discuss, lots to understand uh, as investors in uranium junior space. Um, so let's talk about some of those things. I'd love your love your view on them. So can we just start with the nuclear fuel working group? Now there was a conversation last week, or maybe it was a couple of weeks ago now, um, where they, they had a few more players sitting, sitting around chatting about what could be. My take on it was that a lot of chat, not a lot of numbers. I'm trying to understand from an American an insider in the industry, what was your view of the outcome of that conversation?
1: Well, Matt, I think, you know, as, as they like to point out, there's the process. And I think this was in keeping with what the, what the government does. Now, it did have all the major players, the Secretary of Energy, a couple of his senior people, um, you know, the producers were represented by John Endall, the Uranium Producers of America. And they went through the, all of the recommendations of the report. Now, keep in mind, the, the working group kind of morphed from looking at the front end of the fuel cycle into now things like small modular reactors, uh, the export market for uh, commercial reactors. So, you know, it's broadened in its scope. Now, back on on the Uranium side, they made it very clear there was a need to keep a domestic industry in place. There was a need for more inventory being available, not immediately, but, you know, down the road. So And and they focused in on the $150 million appropriations request in the fiscal year 2021 budget. Now the listeners need to realize the 2021 budget would come into effect October 1st of this year. So we're not that far away from it. Um, There's been no approvals given, but uh, I know the producers have been in some discussions about appropriations prior to that date, and I'm not sure where that stands, but it seemed to be on the call. That's where the government was looking was the the 2021 budget. Now, as I think we've talked in the past, some of the the challenges there is that I think it's difficult for the producers to make firm commitments for, you know, restarts of production, rehiring people when it's only a one-year commitment. Uh, now they've also put it in the ten-year budget forecast, but that's certainly subject to the next administration, be it under President Trump or someone else. So I think there's some some issues that need to be addressed there. So yeah, you know they've got to put the the process in place. The uh, the head of the Department of Nuclear Energy made the comment, you know, by next year that have the process, which should be all inclusive. And, and I think next year, probably referring to the early part of next year. And maybe what they're doing is waiting to see if they get that 150 approved or appropriated and then move forward. I didn't, you know, I got the sense they were, they were still committed, certainly, that this was President Trump's uh, now marching orders for a lot of, of people in the government. So I came away with a you know positive on the the overall nuclear power side but still some as you say unanswered questions kind of you know how quickly can they do it on the fuel
0: cycle so yeah I know it seems it seems very unclear to me I, I get that Trump is pushing it's election year yeah. okay I keep saying this in every interview it's election year there's got to be there's got to be some posturing and and um uh, politicking over this for, for sure. You can't discount that as part of it. And But I, I'm, I was looking for language that could give us clues, but instead it just got, I, to me, slightly more complicated because we're talking about SMRs and getting the export business and competing and you know, back at the international stage again, and, and you know being number one, and all of those kind of big, grandiose statements without yeah. the substance. Of anything more than let's wait and see if this 150 million bucks shows up
1: yeah.
0: once, uh, and who's in power to be able to uh, sign off on the 150 million bucks a year for the next ten years conversation. Not that we know who that's allocated to. So I was, I guess, unreasonably looking for a little bit more guidance from them, a little bit more direction from them, which was which was not forthcoming. Um, well-
1: it, Just to remember, Matt, I think the way it works here, probably the same in the UK, it's got to be addressed at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why they had the Secretary of Energy involved to make the comments that, yes, we're committed to do this. Then it trickles down in in the bureaucracy where they say, hey, there's the mandate. So now we'll start working on more specific, how do we get this done? The guys at the top, tend not to be focused on the specifics of how do we get this done. It's just we need to get it done. So
0: absolutely. And 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 again if I look back in the history of of, of US energy and and secretaries of 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 energy, it's usually a case of all of the above. And all of the above costs a lot of money and all of the above takes time to come in. So I guess the clues weren't there. Hence my slight frustration because I'm looking to see how uh, uranium junior ut- uh, companies are able to, to, to benefit from this. But um, I guess we'll wait to see what the next conversation um, brings us. Um, can we can we talk about um, the news? Obviously Cameco, I, th- I think that's been a big thing since we we spoke. Cigar Lake still shut down. Um, I don't think that looks like it's opening anytime soon. We're what, 2.5-months into the 3-month period. What, what are you hearing?
1: Uh, well, you know, originally it was Three to four weeks, and then they uh, extended that for the indeterminate period. Sorry, I was going to confuse with Kazakhstan. Yep, you're right. Yeah, well, the same, the same language, um, and so right now on the on the cigar lakeside, obviously they reopened the conversion facilities. Uh, I'm not picking up anything that suggests they're now looking to reopen cigar right away. Um, and actually, on the call. Uh, Grant Isaac made the comment that, well, we want to, you know, have our new contract portfolio in place to reopen the two facilities. Now, maybe that was just a slip of the tongue. But I think, you know, those that said early days were looking maybe four to six months uh, probably weren't too far off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's and some of it obviously uh, is COVID-19 oriented. I don't think the province has opened up yet. So that's kind of where we are. So we're continuing to lose that production in the overall picture. Let's put it that way.
0: So well, let's let's bring that together. Let's sandwich uh, this conversation with Kaz Atomprom, um, who also in a, in a recent article suggested that you know, should Covid carry on as as is, and it seems like it, it will in country if, if uh, news reports are to be believed, that they too may have to look to the market to fulfil their contracts. So you've got two of the largest producers, most powerful producers in this small world of Uranium that we we're talking about, who are talking the language of needing their contract portfolios to get, get to a, a certain place and the fact that they're going to have to come in and sweep up the remnants on the table, which seems to be doing the rounds at the moment, um, which in itself may drive price. Now we, we talked several months ago, and we talked a couple of times about the ability of the two large players to do this. Now, I'm not saying they're deliberately, there's not some sort of cabal going on here. They've not come together to do or colluded in this. But, you know, events have occurred, which mean that they are making those sorts of noises. I mean, do you, do you think that's realistic? Do you think that will help the uh, spot price?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, on the Kazan and Prom front, I think, you know, as you know, on their last uh, quarterly call, they made it very clear that they had no intention of kind of coming in the market, La la Cameco. Uh, they viewed it as being the reliable long-term supplier and, and not being seen as a trader. I think though they realized Cameco obviously has a position as a reliable long-term supplier, and with the COVID-19 situation, I think they realize that perhaps with their drawdown of inventory, with the cutbacks and production, uh, Uranium One has has uh, announced that their production is down there. Um, I think they have to look at, and they said they look at all, uh, you know, eventualities. They may have to cover some of their deliveries now. They have a trading arm that I think is in a perfect position to do that. It's just they have to say, well, we're not going to draw our inventories down to an unacceptable level. Uh, production is not going to ramp up as quickly as we had hoped. And so they may have to do that, which obviously will help remove more uh, available inventory in the market. I mean, they have, like you say, Cameco and Hazat and Prom. I'm still hearing that perhaps Arano is doing some coverage out of the market. So, you've got the big producers that could come out and pretty well uh, vacuum up a lot of the excess inventory. So so again, the market, you know, is flattened as we know, kind of quiet right now. But you know, later in the year, we could start to see that uh, that's strengthening again with more demand showing up.
0: Well, let's let's hope so. But that that leads us nicely onto comments or certainly some discussions we've had with regards to carry trade. So, is is the death knell of of carry trade here? Are they about to be wiped out? What's what's your view?
1: Oh, you know, I think the, what I've learned having spent time within a big trading organization uh, they can be pretty creative. Now, as I think I was quoted in one publication you know the traders tend to thrive on large available inventories. They love to mobilize that inventory, place it in the market, be it spot, midterm, long term, uh, you name it. That's kind of where they make their bones, as they say. Um, will it totally disappear? I'm not quite there yet. Now I know that, for example, Kaz Adam Prom has been very public and said they had signed multi-year. Sales agreements with some of the traders, and they've terminated those. They will not supply traders. Now, some of the traders have gone into the Uzbeks and signed uh, off take contracts. Uh, so, uh, you know, but, but will it be a source that the utilities can kind of re- rely is not the right term. I think uh, we'll say, hey, I'm going to cover all of my two to three year needs out in the future with carry trade contracts. I think the ability to do that will be uh, lessened uh, and cost of money. I think as we come out of the COVID situation, I'm being told it's just like getting money for new Uranium production facilities. It's probably going to be available, but it's going to be higher cost. So. You know, that, depending on the spread between the price levels and, you know, that margin can start to collapse, Um, we'll just have to wait and see. Another imponderable, again, if you're a nuclear fuel manager and you have that list of 10 issues, be it Russian suspension agreements, Iranian waivers, whatever, now it's kind of carry trade should be on there somewhere, is how does it fit in, you know, and it may just change where it they, they could be there, but not in the volumes we've seen in the past.
0: Yeah, I think in other industries, they know how to be nimble and agile and segue into near us because they're not going to you know, wither on the vine quietly. They are going to go kicking and screaming, aren't they? So um, we talked about something, um, and again, sort of related, related to the car trade in, in, in a way. It, we talked about location being important. Didn't we? So, and the reason for that is many-fold. But you know, again, just to remind people, you know, what was your what was your take on why location is more and more important in today's market?
1: Well, you know, just uh, for the listeners, um, the price reporters are coming out with uh, price discounts. In other words, the thirty-three twenty-five, let's say today, mm. is for delivery at Camico. It has become the the uh, primary delivery location. I think it's because Cameco wants, uh, when it buys, prefers material there for whatever, whatever reasons. Um, certainly Converdyne, they've still not made any decisions about restarting. I think they're taking deliveries of material, but I understand physically materials being moved off site. So it's not viewed as as attractive as Cameco. And Arano, I understand that they're running up against storage limits. And so they're not, uh, for example, issuing or discussing new supplier co- agreements for non-consumers of conversion. So I think just all of those factors put in place, and it's just the cost of transport and the uncertainties. People just prefer material at Cameco. And so that's why we're seeing that discount, which you know has gotten to be pretty substantial, that's 10%. That, that's you know that's a, a number of dollars so.
0: that, that's not to be ignored no so that that, that is having a, a big impact on the marketplace and um, I mean we, just so generally so actually we'll finish a couple more things then I kind of want to get an over, overall view we'll kind of skip through them the market so um, your atom obviously put out um, a document um, probably about three weeks ago now and they they, they they had two or three big big conclusions what what was your takeaway? from what they had to say. It seems to be they were sort of admonishing the market somewhat.
1: <laughs> well, keep in mind the Eurotom supply agency, which I saw they just had their 60th anniversary, plays a, a different role in the market. Let's put it that way. If you're a, a Eurotom, a EU utility, all of your contracts have to be concurred by the supply agency. In other words, they have a responsibility to implement policy on things like diversification. And so they have an an advisory group made up of representatives from several of the utilities from I know Arano's on there representing the suppliers. And so they periodically come out with a report saying, hey, these are the the 10 most important risks to the front end of the fuel cycle. and, And here are some of the recommended solutions or what can the utilities do? Interesting, uh, the previous one, lack of investment in new mines was the number one risk. That's now dropped down to four, it's still there, but this now is uh, transportation hubs. So the whole issue of moving class seven material globally has come up as now the number one risk. Um, But they've also got other uranium related risks on there, uh, permanent reductions in output and uh, exploration. Not much grassroots exploration going on right now. Um, But, you know, they're able to then recommend to the utilities. You know, don't do single source, have multiple sources, have different forms of inventory. Now, which is interesting because, as you know, as you go in inventory, as you go to natural UF6, enriched UF6, or fabricated fuel, that has big economic implications. But they don't really look at that. They say, well, you should be having material in all forms at different locations and all of that. So I think um, now the utilities generally adhere to those guidelines. Now they've given exceptions, particularly for Eastern European utilities. When they had come in the EU, they had large dependency on, for example, Russian fuel. Now they're moving away from that gradually but, for example, they're in violation, uh, you know, the EU policy is no more than 25% from a single source. So I think that's it. it it's, now do the U.S. utilities look at that and go, ooh, I better, you know, this is all good stuff. I should toe the line. Um, I think they take it into account, just like every, you know, and they say, hey, it's, it's a big group. It's 120-some reactors. So, this is their policy statement. So, you know, it's just another bit of grist for the mill and, uh, but it has an economic component that's not discussed in the report, so.
0: Yeah, it, that, that, that's true. I think that one thing they also said was you need to have 3-years of inventory uh, available to you at any one time. So, little things like… Uh, Seemingly obvious stuff, but it needs saying, right? Um, it, 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 yeah. it, it seems. It seems. Um, so, let, so let's talk. Okay. So all all of those moving parts. So what does this What does this mean? The market is short on production. Obviously, there's been there's been a little drop in demand. Obviously, a little bit of drop in demand, it, it, it would seem. But it is missing. Well, what's the number you're going to put on it? How many millions of pounds is it missing in the market now?
1: Well, I went back to the uh, beginning of 18, so we're talking two and a half years, and that captures Langer shut down, MacArthur, and just running some numbers for this year, I came up with about 70 million pounds oh. of, let's call it, lost production from the, the care and maintenance, the, the cutbacks in Kazakhstan. You know, and again, the Kazakhs, it was off plan production, things like that. But just as a a kind of a working number, you know, 70 million. So it's it's half of what production was last year globally. So it's starting to become a very large number. And that won't be recaptured anytime soon. You know, even if MacArthur Cigar, you know, come back at 18 million each. Now, MacArthur's licensed to go a bit above that. Will they do that? Remains to be seen, but yeah, the, the number I came up with was interestingly enough right at seventy million pounds since the beginning of '18 has been taken out of the primary production. That's that's, that's a big that's a
0: big Could you describe it as lost as opposed to um, delayed? Uh, you think that yeah. should be in the ecosystem uh, today? But both Cameco and Kazatomprom have said we're not going to play catch up. Um, you know They've got different price points, I guess, that they'll be talking about, but nevertheless, they're not going to play catch up and try and get those Pounds back in the market. So will the ecosystem be running on a little bit of vapour as a result? I mean, isn't, isn't that kind of a little bit nerve-wracking for utilities? Well, I
1: think as you know, as has put out on its calls, their program is designed for you know, better transparency on the market. In other words, there's, a, as you know, a broad range of opinions on how much, yeah, the overall inventory is a very large number. We know that, be it a billion pounds, a billion and a half, however you want to classify Russian inventory and high high assay depleted tails and all of that. But, you know, use a billion, um, is that available? In other words, do we just not need to produce anything for years and years? And I think that's part of the part of the strategy is to say, okay, we're going to go out there and we're going to be persistently buying in the market. Now, so far, I mean, look at April, twenty-five million pounds. So, so you know, I think that was traders. It was maybe the financial guys. Uh, I'm hearing there's a couple of low low cost producers that are laying pounds into the spot market. I don't want to point fingers. but you could probably figure out who they are. Um, And so it's, it's not just been, oh, traders are, you know, flooding the market, it's been several sources. And I think, you know, again, if I'm a financial investor and I bought at 25, maybe even in January and I can sell at 33, I might take that $8 for my half a million pounds and then say, well, if the market starts to move up again, I'll move back in. So I think we're seeing, you know, again, quite a bit of different sourcing. But as the persistent pressure comes in, the utilities have backed out of the spot market, from what I can tell. Doesn't mean they've stopped buying, but they have other things they're working on right now, and they seem to not be particularly concerned about availability.
0: No, they're so not. They're like they're not, and um, because you know, if if why I...
1: buy at thirty-three? So
0: yeah, big big <laughs> discuss. Um, The EIA uranium marketing annual report came out about two weeks ago. I think it stunned a few people, and I'm not sure why it it was. It stunned a few people, but it did because the numbers show that it's like three million pounds less than the year before. It's it's, it's no big deal. They're not running out anytime soon. It's way more than people imagined, and I've heard various versions of just post. Post number justification about why that why that is and you know the fact that you have you and the enriched and so forth was being used instead of U three O eight and you know and it all kind of like you know with hindsight uh, is is a great argument but I th- I think at the time on the day it stunned a few people a lot of market commentators didn't actually know what was going on couldn't work it out um, what was your take did you did you expect these numbers to come out because if you're a uranium Junior minor, uh, equities investor. You're slightly disappointed by that because it says, as you've just said to me, the utilities don't seem particularly worried. They've got other stuff to do. They've got all of the above to look at. They've got their gas. They've got their renewables to worry about. So they they know they they know they're good for a while. So 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 what, what's in it for yeah. us? What should we be thinking?
1: Yeah, I think. Uh a little surprising was the, uh, the utility inventory went up a little bit, we're talking, rather mm. than uh, decline. Mm. And you know, the utilities were more active in the spot last year, according to UX. Mm. You know, they, they bought globally, you know, 22 million pounds, something like that. Um, now the unfilled requirement profile, uh, the utilities entered into contracts for about 26 million pounds when Hmm. you average minimum, maximum. And when you look at the total unfilled requirements, as if by magic, they kind of dropped by 26 million pounds. So yeah, they did some contracting, some of it further into the future. And I think that reflected, as reported by Cameco, they've gone to some of their bigger, better utility customers, and they've probably renegotiated, extended, uh, whatever their contracts. So I mean, to me, all the pieces kind of fit. But then when you look again at unfilled requirements, by 2024, which isn't that far off, you know, more than 50% of the stated requirements from the utilities are yet to be contracted. 22 million pounds. And then in the year in 23, it's 37%. So that's still a lot of material to be contracted for, the question is always the timing. When do the utilities decide, hey, now, as we have talked, when I went to the NEI conference in January, a number of the utilities were saying, hey, I think the time is coming. I want to start talking about long-term contracts, and a couple of them entered the market. Um, But the rest of them have now kind of stepped back and said, again, I've got other big issues looming. There seems to be material. Um, So, but I do think there is, it has been reported, there are ongoing discussions between some suppliers and the bigger utilities. Mm. And so, you know, but it's just not at the level where you're seeing a lot of these contracts reported And I think we may have to wait till fourth quarter. I mean, we're almost at the end of the second quarter. And until we see a little more clear air, just as a side note, it's pretty interesting. The DOE Energy Information Administration just came out with an update on uh, electricity in the U.S. uh, through 2022 or whatever. But this year they see electricity demand down 5.7% for the year. But nuclear share, which has been 20%, goes to 22% because of a much lesser cutback. So the point is, the plants are still operating. They're being refueled, maybe under schedules that have had to be jockeyed around. I see TVA just finished its third refueling. So again, the fuel groups have been, let's say, distracted or prioritized away from Well, I need material in 2024 rather than I've got to get work on with the group that's refueling today. So I think there's part of all that. And again, the price I've heard that some of the utilities are speculating price will go mid 30s, then the air clears and it drops back below 30. So I really don't see the need to go out and, and contract for a lot of material. But the need is still there. The re- reactors are operating. We're yet to see the new EU numbers, which will come out in July. So,
0: okay, I think that that will be very telling. That's really interesting what you said there, because again, it, the, some of the reaction to the um, the, the uh, EAI uh, marketing report, uranium marketing report, was that don't worry, there's a whole bunch of uh, reactors which need to be refueled this year that's going to dramatically you know, change the, 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 the environment. Okay. It'll be fine. Um, do, you, do you think that's going to be big enough to, to make the utility? No. Is that a big enough? Right. Okay. No. There we are. Good. Thank no, you. No,
1: the reloads that are being loaded now were planned five years ago. Gotcha. I mean, people don't understand this isn't coal where you say, I need another few more tonnes the the you know, having worked within a fuel group, an operations group at a utility, they're planning several reloads out in the future. Got it because they have to have that material in the pipeline enriched to the right level, fabricated, bundles delivered, so this is not a just in time uh industry at all. <laughs>
0: Got it. I wanted to hear that because just listening and reading some of that conversation, it just seemed—I always call it pub talk. You got to speak to people yeah. in the know and have been in been in the industry and sort of see it. So it just
1: so I, happened I saw what about ninety percent of the U.S. reactors are scheduled to be refueled this year, yeah, either sure. spring or fall. Those are the refueling uh, windows. Okay. And so you go, yeah, that's a it's a lot of material, a lot of refueling that's going on, but this was planned forever ago.
0: Okay. So <laughs> what does that mean for uh, Uranium producers? All of this refueling is going on. It's been planned. They're going to need to you know, backfill as it were, but looking at the numbers from the EIA, looking at UXC, uh, looking at trade tech numbers, it's not going to affect share price for some time to come.
1: It's all, you know, and, and I think our last talk was on the term market. Yeah.
0: I think it's when the Good
1: utilities talk. say, OK, I need to start contracting for 2023, 2024, which they'll do maybe starting later this year. So the, any kind of price implication, certainly for material on the production curve, uh, you're going to see soon. So in other words, that thirty-one, thirty-two dollars. Well, look at okay, trade tech has a new index, the production cost index, where they're just saying this isn't necessarily reflective of what people might offer. I've seen too many producers that go, oh well, I'll take this project, this contract which is a loss leader, but then I want to report I've got a contract and then the investors will say I'm real and I can do that anyway. What I think trade tech has done is modeled production and said, hey, for restarts and new production, the lowest is $44. And they're putting it out there. They're saying this is what it costs. And I think that does not have a profit component. So you can really bump that up to well into the the, the high 40s so that to me is a more important index than what somebody might be offering in a hybrid contract uh you know so so that's a point is that we say well once the utilities go hey i've talked to the suppliers and i'm not going to see prices below 40 then i really probably and it helps so that the spot price moves up because then that gap starts to close and the optics look better for the long-term contract at 45. So all of the, I think a lot of the factors are beginning to help the whole idea of more term contracting.
0: So that's the Delta we should be uh, looking for, the closing closing of that gap. Beautiful. I think that's one for another day because uh, I, I want to get into contracts only conversation with you because it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, so why don't, why don't we segue on to something useful for Uranium equities investors. Okay. So let, let's, let's just take a look at the market. A few things that I've noticed. Um, there's a big move by one company, which um, you know well, which is Energy Fuels. Um, this discussion that they're having in the market about rare earths, okay, so, they're a Uranium company with Vanadium uh, as well. So, we've just talked about Uranium market, you know, we've kind of skipped through a lot of topics there. They do have this Uranium component. I think I heard something about, yes, and a pot- potential, another Section 232 for uh, Vanadium. Um, but again, let's park that up for now. But Rare Earths, oh boy, that is exciting to me because Rare Earths can be processed at White Mesa the White Mesa mill that they have. It's a a huge mill with many, many lines to it. So do you know know much about that? I mean, I don't think necessarily think they're segueing away from Uranium, but they're giving themselves more options, it seems. And as another strategic mineral in the US, just how important is this?
1: From my understanding, I'm by no means a rare earths expert, um, but with the current uh, discomfort with, say, trade with China, I think there is a growing focus within the U.S. that the rare earths industry needs to be, let's call it, more vibrant. Now, I know the White Mesa Mill really well. I worked for old energy fuels when the mill was, had just been, been built. And I think they've done a really good job of making a dedicated uranium mill into a much more flexible facility. Obviously, it had uranium vanadium to begin with because of the Colorado Plateau ores, When the market went south, they got into alternate feeds, which is effectively a waste processing disposal business, which they're still doing, and they've been doing it now for 20, 25 years. And I know that looking at White Mesa for rare earths processing has been going on for a while internally. In other words, how can we make this even more flexible if the uranium market does not respond if the Department of Defense and DOE, that project doesn't go as quickly or as large or as well to to support us. So I think, you know, it's like some of the other companies. I know Uranium Energy has got, I think, Titanium they're looking at. So, you know, it's a good business strategy if you can do it. I mean, if you're an ISR producer, it's really tough to do more than produce uranium out of your processing plant. But a traditional mill, you know, they, they're able to engineer it to do more. So I think, it's, to me, it's a plus. Now the question is, are they abandoning uranium? Well, no. It's still going to be, I think, their primary focus. But there's going to be this, let's call it secondary activity, of where they may become a focal point for the production or processing of rare earths, which I know there's a big mine in Texas or there's a proposed mine. I haven't, you know, I know there's the one in California, but there's probably several big deposits where they're going, well, we don't really want to build a mill or we can't or whatever. And so maybe White Mesa is is the answer. We, in fact, we drove right by Blanding on the way to Arizona on our visit down there. And you go, yeah, there's a big facility sitting out there in southeastern Uh, Utah that could be used for a number of minerals. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a smart business strategy decision. Just don't sit there and go, well, you know, uranium's tough and we're just going to ride it out. And, you know, I I think they need to look at other...
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd, what, what I liked what I liked about it is there's there's just this general mood on Capitol Hill about national security oh. across a multitude of different commodities, and you know, rares has a kind of radioactive component to it, so it's not a case of you know do do you want to pay for a mill, but oh. can you get the licenses to um, process radioactive waste or material, um, and how long does that take? And not every state feels the same way about it, but it, it I don't think the market's kind of given. Um, the company credit for that yet certainly not on the share price that's for sure, um, wow. but they've they've got one or two things to to deliver between now and then. But I just thought it was an interesting one. The other big one that stood out for me was um, uh, it's an Australian company but the assets in, in the in the US, which is uh, Peninsula Energy. They've just raised forty million US uh, sorry Australian uh, dollars. That's a big big chunk of change. Um, it's an ISR project, obviously. I mean, have you heard much about what's, what the plans are there? Wayne, we had Wayne Helley on the other day actually talking about it. Uh,
1: which project? I didn't hear
0: you. Uh, uh, which Peninsula Energies um, oh. project. Are you aware of that?
1: Oh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, Peninsula obviously is moving forward with the new technology, which hadn't been really utilised in Wyoming, except back in the 60s or something. So you know they're not sitting still. they're saying hey, let's let's try to meet the market somewhere in the middle on cost. Um, but i'm not I'm not sure they're going to diversify at all. I mean, I see a Zargas now in parts of Wyoming, on top of South Dakota, so they're geographically you know, so there's like I said, there's a number of diversification strategies and and you know optimization that's going on. In response to the market,
0: so yeah, I think so. yeah. Well, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of movement in, in in the market. I think some people have taken advantage of the recent move in price to go and raise a, a few dollars to kind of keep the lights on and keep things chugging along. And there's been you know small raises, but there's also been like I say, you know, eighty million Australian is is not insignificant. Um, same next gen, thirty million. Uh, so not next gen, fishing, thirty million. Um, about three four weeks ago, um, again. Yeah. To try and move things along. So, do you th- do you feel that the market sentiment? Because I mean, you're like you're in sitting in front uh, of these funds. You're talking to these guys. Are, is, the, is the conversation changing? Is it evolving? Are they getting excited again?
1: Um, yeah, I did a, a roadshow in January for uh, one of the companies I work with, and you know maybe it was who we scheduled the meetings with, but there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm then. Uh, and I think it's still there. It's been muted a little bit by COVID-19 on what does that mean? How long is it going to last? What's the role of nuclear going for? You know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I think there, from what I could tell, there is capital available, but you've got to have a really good story, which has gone beyond, well, I have a bunch of drill holes, but it, now they're asking questions about what does the management look like? In other words, do they have the responsibility or excuse me, the experience in the industry? Um, And that's becoming harder to acquire. Let's put it that way. I think there's a lot of companies now that have uh, brought in executives just by necessity from other commodities, from uh, some are financial guys, um, but to try to find You know, those that have uranium in their blood. Uh, One of my favorites, of course, is John Borshaw. He and I still stay in. But he's, you know, he's like I am. He's a uranium bug or bull. And, uh, but there's fewer and fewer uh, of those uh, guys around. Just because there hasn't been the, the training ground, there hasn't been, it's just like they're now saying, we've got to train up more part of that discussion with DOE more uh, professionals in the nuclear area. Well, you've got to demonstrate it's where someone says, I want to spend 40 years in this industry. And I think that's kind of where we're coming with uranium. One of the more disquieting aspects of it is my concern is 10 years from now, do you have enough experience to operate uranium facilities, which are different than anything else on the face of the planet from a regulation standpoint, transportation, which is now a huge risk, um, you know, dealing with the governments uh, on permitting. um, I know even Vimy, you know, they've got federal permits, I guess at the the federal level, but they still, you know, they're making it clear they've got kind of secondary, uh, you know, provincial uh, state level Uh, permits that they still have to acquire I mean well as you know I worked for Berkeley for a while and I think they said with Salamanca there was 120 permits licenses approvals that they had to have all current so everything kind of came together in that one core and so 120 for one three three million pound a year mine which by the way seemingly is let's say struggling uh, to say the least so so that to me is as big an issue as anything is human resources is how many uranium geologists how many uranium process engineers and and they're just not growing any so so that could be I think the next big challenge in the production side. It's interesting. I mean, we
0: did talk about this. I think, again, probably our second interview, we, we talked about human resource. And, you know, we, my big takeaway from that was, if you haven't done it before, you're probably going to struggle. So as an investor, I'm looking for someone who's produced pounds, who's got them into the market. Because as you say, you know, you've got to, one, you've got to get to work out how the hell to get out of the ground economically. But then you got to get it, you got to transport it, and that's by road. What do you do with store it? Store it at a port, get it on a boat, get it to where it needs to be. It, the, the the logistics are complex for sure, and I do appreciate what you're saying with regards to there's not just a CEO or, or a management team who've, who've done it before, but the, the entire food chain of people, the operational management team. Oh, okay. If you haven't done it before, you possibly are slightly more likely to fall over. Uh, than than not. Um, so again, yes, it's
1: not impossible, but
0: it's not know. impossible. It's just but that little bit harder and fraught with regulation and and uh, and, and so forth. No. Um, but again, I, I want clues. I want some clues here from you, Dustin. I know it's, gonna, it's hard to suck these out of you, but we're we're going to try. Is which is in terms of the way the current market stands. Like we get the big boys. We've talked Cameco. We've talked to Rano. We've talked to Kazatomprom. But um, there's a kind of stable of Smaller producers, mid-tier producers, and we've mentioned a couple there in terms of uh, UR energy and uh, you know Ener- energy fuels, and, and, and um, obviously the guys in Namibia. But what else should we be looking for? Because there's, there's, I've already noticed a few new entrants into the marketplace. People who were <laughs> doing something else completely different um, two months yeah. ago have just gone and um, bought licenses, uranium licenses, because it seems to be you know becoming flavour of the month. We're getting closer to the flavour of the month. Those guys make me nervous because they're segueing from one commodity to the next. But are there companies, or if you don't want to name companies, are there clues as to the types of companies in terms of what their structure is today uh, that we should be looking for, uh, for investment purposes?
1: Well, I think obviously as the price starts to move up, as you say, you get uh, enthusiasts that come in the industry. Um, And it just depends on what the investors are looking for. In other words, you know, it's not been my area of specialty, but I've been around now like 15 years dealing with the investors. There are some companies that are destined never to produce anything. That's okay. But then don't buy off on, oh, well, we're the next producer. Well, maybe not. I mean, and there's some negatives to being a producer then you're really exposed to market price swings and all kinds, of, all kinds of stuff. So I guess it's, you know, the diversified portfolio. I think, you know, we do have the Paladins, now the Lotus Group with the uh, Calakira with, that have existing facilities, energy fuels, uh, the other guys in the U.S., Uranium Energy, your energy, that obviously if you've got the facilities, you've made some kind of a commitment that you're probably going to try to move toward operation. I think as you get further away from that, when you look at the 400 million to build a facility somewhere and the years it takes um, in Canada, the 1.2 billion or more, um, then it gets a little less, um, I don't want to say certain, but I think there's a whole new group of challenges where then you have to say, well, Is this group ready to spend, to raise that kind of money and then effectively invest it in building this facility? You see, my experience goes back to Paladin. When we raised the money, everything was ready to go, built the plant, built the phase one mine, you know, on budget, on schedule. But that was under a group where they all had experience in uranium. and. So it all worked well. I think there's just a lot of other projects that didn't quite go, let's pick on Emerarin, which was a big company building it. And Tricopy, I mean, was a massive disaster. So it's not, you know, you've, you've got to try to weigh all of that and say, hey, maybe this group was successful elsewhere. Doesn't say they can't be successful in uranium, but there's just a lot of issues that they have to appreciate rather than, oh, we'll get this done in six months. No, I'd rather hear, we think we can get it done in a year and a half, but it could take us longer because. So, which again, for investors in the space, it's going to be really hard to bring on new production, I think. You've got the existing facilities, fine. But, you know, as we all know, in the last uplift outside of Kazakhstan, which was really operated by the Kazakh, was Paladin, you know, and then a few small ISR projects in Wyoming, but that was it for all of the discussion and all of that. So, so yeah, it's, it's a complex industry. I don't want to name names. I could probably come up with a half a dozen where I'd say, yeah, they're probably going to, you know, accomplish more sooner than this other list. So I think people can realize, you know, step back and, and see where that might be. So.
0: Well, that will be an interesting conversation for sure. And I, I know we, yeah. we, we, feel, we feel the same way, we, we feel, but we don't know one-tenth of what you know. So uh, that, that's valuable, valuable data. But look, um, I think we, we've taken up a lot of your time, but can I just finish with one last question? I need to talk about um, short-term loan that's happened in the market recently, UPC. What's going on there?
1: Well, I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, UPC had done uh, UF6 loans in the past that were, you know, covered. I think more than a year. Um, the whole loan area can be really tricky. I got involved when I was with New Mexico Trading. Part of it is collateralization, particularly in a rising market. If you mark to market uh, and you've let's say lent a million pounds to someone at fifty dollars. The price goes to 60. Well, normally that's secured with a, a letter of credit. So then there's got to be adjustments. It can be just a big pain. Um, for example, I think Yellow Cake has been asked, do they want to get it in the loan market? And, you know, the, the loan fees have been like 1%. So it just wasn't worth the grief. Well, I thought it was interesting UPC uh, announced that they'd done a half a million pound U308 loan Uh, which was going to yield $100,000 a month for, I think, like a four-month period. So they're going to get $400,000 to lend someone, and they said it was a secured loan. I think it might be uh, just a location where someone needed half a million pounds, maybe at Cameco, and they were, you know, UPC was willing, because if you annualize the, the interest rate, that's pretty rich. So someone seemed to be pretty anxious to get material, uh, which would be returned in a fairly short window. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting um, activity that UPC got involved in. Um, and they're selling conversion. You probably saw that, yeah, yeah. which what a great investment. You know, they probably bought it certainly b- b- below five and selling it for 20. Yeah. So that's not bad.
0: Yeah, um, you'd be happy. But
1: yeah, so I thought the loan was, was an interesting. It's
0: quite rich. Uh, quite rich. But I guess that's, decision, why, you, that's yeah. why you do it, right? Um, yep. Dustin, amazing. Thank you. I've, I've again learned more about this market. Um, and, and I'm glad you kind of cleared up a few things which were kind of troubling me um, from some other mar- market commentators. Um, appreciate that. Well, let's um, hopefully things pick up uh, across the board. I let's mean, put together
1: get together again. It may not be WNA. There's people still optimistic that that will happen, but I'm not so sure. In September, so,
0: no chance, no chance. And yeah, what's after? Do you think Nashville will happen?
1: Well, it's Las Vegas.
0: It's Las Vegas, sorry. Las next, Vegas.
1: Yeah, at the end of October, although I'm hearing that there's some pushback from, interestingly, the utilities. Mm. Don't really want to go to Las Vegas. I'd rather have it maybe in Washington, shorter you know, and all that. I mean, you can make the case there will be no industry conferences this year. The one that's in Australia that I know Mark Chalmers uh, coordinates will obviously be virtual. So it'll be kind of interesting, pretty interesting group of speakers. But it's just you don't have that chance to interface. And I think part of that then hinders some of the particularly term contracting. So.
0: You know, you, you said to me last September at the uh, NWA in London, you said decisions don't get made until it was Nashville last year. That's probably why I got confused there. It was decisions don't get made until after October. That, that's when people kind of get together. U.S. utilities, they all kind of gather and yeah. conversations happen. So if it's not going to happen in Las Vegas this year, do, they're not going to get together virtually. These, these are conversations that happen in corridors, aren't they?
1: Usually. <laughs> or you do speed dating, where you have a series of thirty-minute meetings with fuel managers. Right. That became kind of the the normal M O. Right. Uh, but now, uh, you know, it could slow down the the contracting, particularly for term, because everybody kind of wants to mm. sit down and get a feel for
0: is this really
1: gonna gonna happen? And so, anyway, we'll see. So, yeah, I think you know. Two months from now, we might go. Whoa, look at where the market is. We really missed it. Or hmm. you go, oh, you know, we'll just have to wait. We'll and have see. to wait and
0: see. Okay, well, maybe no, no, um, no Las Vegas. There's a different kind of speed dating they do oh, there. No. I think, isn't it? Uh, from what I hear. So, well, uh, <laughs> we shall uh, catch up again soon. Um, There's probably going to be something exciting happening in the uranium market. There always is. Um, loved your One insight as ever. Loved your insight as ever. So, thanks so much, Dustin. Yeah, you're quite
1: welcome. And again, in this industry, hope springs eternal. So, we'll see.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast?